you know, I teach my students that they need to use their art as their voice. So I said, okay, well, you need to walk the walk and see what you can do. So I decided that I would try to portray the, the way the LGBTQ plus community is, is portrayed is typically in the media is gay pride parades or marches and protests. So that's what people would see. And I thought, well, you know, they just don't understand. So This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we're going to be talking about wonderful, important, elegant, brilliant work. Uh, we're going to be talking with Barbara Proud, B. Proud, who is a fine art photographer, a documentary photographer, teaches at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, as well as ICP, the International Center for Photography in New York. Her work is in the Weeks Gallery, the D Delaware Art Museum. Museum. It's at the Eastman Kodak Gallery, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, all over the place. 20-some-odd years, been a commercial photographer, a fine art photographer, with clients including the LPGA, Human Rights Campaign, Girl Scouts, American Red Cross, Meals on Wheels. It just keeps going and going. And not only is the work tremendously successful and tremendously interesting, in the last several years, Barbara's taken on social activism, social responsibility, and the new work is just breathtaking. It, I mean, she's got one of, I think, the most necessary voices uh, in photography these days. Barbara, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Nice to be here. <laughs> I, I, I am really excited to talk with you because I'm digging this work. All the different kinds of work that you're involved in, and, and especially the way that you are not only, uh, not only um, creating wonderful images, but putting them to a, a necessary and important use these days. So before we dive into the whole history, though, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your stuff on, on social media. I'm looking at your biography and stuff. And you do say things like, you know, you lived in Europe for seven years, which gave you a passion for food, wine, and travel, but you don't really say how the camera came into your life. So g give me the origin story. You know, are you one of these kids with, you know, a flash cube and an Instamatic back at, you know, in the old days or how did, how did photography come to you? Yeah, well, that's kind of true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the very first camera I got, I was nine years old and I won one of those Instamatic cameras in a drugstore competition um lottery where my aunt happened to work oh, okay uh so i had my first camera and i can't say that i actually fell in love with photography but i did have a camera and i was kind of an artistic child i i drew a lot um my older sister insisted that i take drawing lessons at the delaware art museum so in high school, I, I took a humanities class, and that's where I really started to understand photography or, you know, the, the spark was lit. Mm -hmm. And uh, it grew from there. Do you, do you remember when you first sort of identified as a photographer? I'm still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all, all the awards in the galleries, come on. Um, photographer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I, I, I'm really, you are not 
alone by any stretch of the imagination um, to say that sketching and that drawing was the gateway into photography. What were you doing people? Were you doing portraits back then? Were you doing landscapes? You know, you know, your shoes on the floor? What kind of things were you drawing? I would do a lot of um, still life, I think, but I do also remember... I remember duplicating the Beatles Let It Be portraits. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. my, uncle, my uncle and aunt were painters to um, kind of a sideline. And my uncle was really good at perspective. So he would help me figure things out and, and get all the proportions right. And, you know, I really, that was really fortunate for me. So mm-hmm. uh, I had a lot of encouragement along the way. And then for the photography for me was really kind of, a great combination because it, it appealed to the, to the geek part of me and the the science part of me and, and all that cool stuff and the gear plus Mm -hmm. then the artistic expression. So your first publication, what was that? Um, well, I guess I was in the newspaper in a competition that, um, was sponsored by Eastman Kodak. Mm -hmm. So I was in high school when I took, um, a portrait that, that won that competition and then after that, when I came back from Europe and really started a, a commercial studio, it was House Beautiful Magazine. And what would you have in there? Um, I had to photograph the interiors of a home in Philadelphia. Mm, so, okay. yeah, it was pretty exciting. <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I'm looking at your website here and, you know, we're, we're going to talk about the current projects in just a minute, but under mm-hmm. galleries, you've got people, you've got food and wine, you've got travel. You, I mean, you've got the whole gambit of, of commercial photography here. It, it, you have a voice. I mean, you, you would think in, in you know, a lot of commercial stuff, the art director's telling you what to do or, or the client's telling you what to do. How, how would you describe your approach to just, you know, broccoli on a fork or corks? Or I'm looking, you know, obviously looking at your website here, you know, a, a bottle of cognac. What, what are you bringing to this? Oh, I mean, food in itself can be, it's just an art form. So sometimes photographing is actually really easy, but you know, the shapes and the forms and the colors, and really I I have to make people want to eat Mm -hmm. and make their mouth water and, you know, looking at things in different ways and trying to, you know, just capture that one special moment is, is the way it works. Oh, and the travel stuff? Well, I love to travel and Mm -hmm. living in Europe for seven years, I traveled a lot. Um, I lived in Germany and that's sort of like the the center of it all in that (laughs) you can go any direction and be in, you know, a different culture immediately. Uh Um, So, I know I went as far, you know, as Turkey, I went to, I went to Africa twice to Kenya and Egypt um, I could get on the train at night and be in Amsterdam the next day in the morning or Paris or, you know, it was just, it was amazing. Uh, but I mean, and your work is really cool. Um, one of the things in your travel gallery, it, it's a beachside. There's two huts, cabanas, whatever they're um, triangular blue tops to them. Do you remember that image? Tell, tell me about that one. Yeah, I think it was in Florida, actually. Um, oh, okay. You know, down in Miami, they've got some really cool you know, beach places. And, you know, I love architecture and I love the the lines and the geometry of, of the um, cabanas and the lifeguard stands. And I still photograph them. <laughs> 
Well, you know, what I'm getting is you have a real strong sense of, of um, graphic design, for lack of a better term, I guess, in your travel, in your product, your food and wine uh, photography. And so when you talk about a relative teaching you perspective and all that, um, do you think there's a carryover there that taught you how to understand line and shape in an image? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And and studying art history, my, my again, my older sister was an art historian, and so she okay. exposed me to a lot of artists, and would take me to to art museums, and I would fall in love with Mondrian and Matisse, and you know all these different people that she exposed me to. I, I have to give her a lot of credit. But you know, th- th- there's there's the ability to sort of understand it, but then there's the ability to do it. A lot of art historians are lousy painters. How did how did the talent come into this? I, you know, maybe I inherited. I guess I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my father was very creative. Mm-hmm. Um, he was actually a magician. Oh my! Yeah, he was an avid magician. So he was an accountant by trade, but he was a magician <laughs> by love. I couldn't have a dark room in my basement because it was a stage. But okay. he would make all of his own, um, all the apparatus. He would make the tables and everything he used. He would go to sewing stores and buy cloth and buttons and things. And um, he was just constantly making things uh, down in his his little workshop. He would make us toys at Christmas time. That was like the last thing when everybody had opened their gifts. He'd bring out these things that were he had one for everybody and it was a toy that was always some kind of competition and a game. And it was so much fun. Mm -hmm. Um, but he had that creative spark and you know, I have to, I have to credit that too. So, you know, and just a lot of exposure from, um, the places my sister made sure that I saw. Um, and I loved it. Well, I, th- I mean, th- this work is absolutely thrilling at, at every page. How did you get into photographing um, portraits of, of people? Because, and, and we're not just talking, in, not, again, not the new work. I'm, I'm going to get there in a second. Um, but again, looking at your website, little known people, you know, like John Lewis and Madeline Albright and Jeff Bezos. I mean, how in the world did you get into that part um, of your photographic life? A couple ways. So I photographed for the human rights campaign mm-hmm. uh, for t- two decades, I think. Every national dinner and some of the larger city dinners like New York City. And there were always tons of celebrities there. So, I mean, I photographed Elton John and Jeff Bezos and Billie Jean King and Christopher Reeve. I mean, it's endless. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty amazing. And then other events... Um, of the similar nature where celebrities are coming and they're either getting awards or special speakers or something. And I'm always able to photograph them. When I photographed Annie Leibovitz, it was the one time I insisted on having my photograph taken with the celebrity. (laughs) I would never ask. And that time I said, I don't care if I don't get this job again, I'm have to do this. Was that intimidating as hell to take a picture um, of and with her? No. Really? No, not at all. Oh, I, 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 I would be so nervous. I'm sure I would have every setting blown. It just, just completely be beside myself. So, okay, we're marching along. You've got this great career. You've got awards. Everything comes, and we get to the 2008 presidential election and Proposition Eight. 
sort of a turning point in your career. T- tell me what was going on here. Uh, well, it, there was a, it was like a domino effect of so many different things. Mm-hmm. My In October, so the month before, October 20th, my then partner, now wife, and I celebrated our 20th anniversary. And on that day, we became the longest existing couple in our families. Okay. So, you know, I was pretty proud of that. And um, we were just, we were the ones without all the rights. So we were accepted by our families, for sure. We were the, um, we're the godparents to all the nieces and nephews. We were the dog sitters. We were elder care. We were powers of attorney. We were executors of wills. We were executors of the ex's wills. I mean, it just went on. But we just didn't have the same validation from our family as a couple, like, oh, do they have an anniversary? <laughs> and certainly the government didn't give us any rights that we deserved. Right. Uh, and it was, it was wearing on me, um, you know, especially if on the few times I would agree to a photograph of a wedding, I would be like, damn it, why? <laughs> mm-hmm. Not fair. Um, anyway, President Obama was elected in the next month, um, which I had great hopes for. But at the same time, Proposition 8, passed and some other hateful measures, I think in Arkansas and a few other states. And it just, I just, it was the tip of the iceberg for me. I just said, all right, what can I do? And then we had it also, we had um, an economic collapse and I lost a lot of work for the coming oh year. Yep. And so I said to myself, well, I can't not work. So I'm going to have to make my own work. And what can I do uh, to make a difference here? Um, you know, I teach my students that they need to use their art as their voice. So I said, okay, well, you need to walk the walk and see what you can do. So I decided that I would try to portray the the way the LGBTQ plus community is, is portrayed is typically in the media is gay pride parades or marches and protests. Right. So that's what people would see. And I thought, well, you know, they just don't understand. So I'm going to try to make photographs that try to help people understand. So I would decided that I would do, I, I reverted back to a portrait I had taken of my best friend and her partner um, and said, that's what I want to do. I want to do black and white portraits. I want to strip away all of the rainbow imagery and try to ask people to just look at the heart and soul of the subjects. And I would try to make sure that I would take a touching, emotional portrait that would exude love. And I would, I wanted to get, I had a whole plan how I wanted to get it out there. I -hmm. wanted, I knew I wanted to make a book because I knew that um, I wanted people to have access to it without having to go to a gallery. And, you know, how many shows can I have in a year? How much geography can I cover? Or can a book cover so much more. I also knew that I wanted a story to accompany the portrait because I thought that would take the viewer just another level deeper. If I made an environmental portrait, they would be able to see something about the subject's lives. But if there were texts explaining some of the obstacles that people go through just in order to be together, I thought it might help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I decided to also well, while you're at it, you need to learn something new. So I think I'll learn video too. <laughs> so I decided that I would, I would video 
the couples so that I would have the video footage for a film and I would not have to take a lot of notes. So I could just get the video transcribed and I would have the text, Ah. which I could extract from. I mean, because I was wearing all of the hats in a lot of these shoots. So I traveled around the country and you can't always afford an assistant when you have to play airfare and hotels and meals. Right. So, you know, I was the photographer, the assistant, the sound person, the videographer, the interviewer, everything all at once. And, and we, I mean, we should tell you, you know, th- this became a project called First Comes Love, we, you know, a, a series of, of portraits. And, and I want to talk about a couple of them in, in specifically here and became, you know, the video and everything else. They are all black and white. They are all really, you know, close, intimate portraits um, of, with, with one exception, couples. Uh, well, there's a couple of, there's a couple of three or four, three in them. But you, you've also got the length of their relationship, uh, as as part of the text, at least at least on the website, mm-hmm. you know the first one here, Juan and Michael, um, you know, eighteen years. You, you've got you know forty five years, twenty six years. You know, just look scrolling through them here. Why was it important to put the length of their relationship on there? Well, because I I wanted to show that the LGBTQ couples were already living ostensibly as married for decades together, mm-hmm. just without the rights that supported us with, you know, insurance and health care and inheritance and all that other stuff. So showing that we are, are stable mm-hmm. and together and staying together in spite of all the other obstacles, I thought that was a great thing to have a part of. Initially, I started out with I wanted people that were together 20 years and more, but then I realized that that was just I was limiting myself to an older demographic mm-hmm. and I wanted to be able to appeal to young people as well so that, you know, they would, they would see that there was hope. So, but then there were also a lot of people who were in the teens years as in together, 18 years, right. um, 15 years who wanted to be a part. So I, I lowered the bar to 10. <laughs> 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 Only 10 years, a, a Only flash 10. in the pan. So I have 10 <laughs> years to 59 years together with the longest couple. Oh, my. Talk to me about the, this first image here on, on the website, Juan and Michael. A beautiful, beautiful portrait um, of, of two guys. And, you know, looking at the art direction here, looking at, you know, their their pose, their relationship, the, you know, the, the way they're interacting with you and the camera. Um, just walk me through the creation of this image. To be truthful, I met, actually Toby, but Juan is his real name. Uh, I met <laughs> okay. them at, at the Human Rights Campaign National Dinners. Okay. And they were at one of the very front tables every year. And the first year I saw them, I just, they took my breath away. They were so handsome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just, I would talk to them and I would see them every year and we would just talk. And so when I decided that I was going to do this project, I knew that they had been together for a really long time. So I said, I'm going to ask them and see what they say. Uh, and they said, yes. So, um, they live in Washington, DC and, uh, uh Michael is a, uh, a real estate agent as well. So, I mm-hmm. mean, they had a beautiful, beautiful home, um, very well decorated, great artwork. And I just, as you were talking about the lines and the forms and the shapes, I fell in love with the columns and, uh, 
and the chairs and the shapes that they made in the background. Mm-hmm. And uh, initially they were both wearing mattress plaid shorts and I made them change. <laughs> 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 and so, yeah, that was my, that was, I guess that was my favorite. We did some with a more shirtless, et cetera, but. Well, you, you've got the black shirt and the white shirt here. You've got, you know, not only the columns, but the mirror in the background. So sort of, you know, you know complimentary uh, shapes in the background there. But even more, you know, people talk about developing relationships with their portrait subjects. Because in, in that comfort, in that relationship, finally you can get an image that is more than a static pose. That, that actually, you know, is uh, revealing a little bit, you know, of their heart, their soul, whatever you want to say. Did this take a long time to get this wonderful of a portrait? No, not really. Um, I mean, we took a lot of pictures, but I think that was fairly early on. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some people that are really easy to photograph. And for me with this project, you know, the, the hardest, one of the hardest things was that people just, you know, they think they want to smile for the camera. Right and and look cute and I I have to explain that you know I'm not taking your next holiday card like you know I may very well pick a picture where you're not even looking at me so you know what you have to think about during this photo shoot is 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 the bond between the two of you and how much you love each other and that's what I need you to express not to me but beyond me to the rest of the world so I look trying to pull out of them that sort of not all, the love and, and the confidence in, in who they are as a couple. You know, in, in most, not all, but in most of the pictures, they are looking straight at you and, and not at each other. Was that, was that intentional? Was that, was that just a choice of, you know, out of all the images, this is the one I like best? Yeah. You know what? There's, they're always somewhere they're not looking at me and they're the ones that my wife likes the best. <laughs> and she's not wrong but there's just something about people being eye to eye with the viewer Mm -hmm. that speaks to me that they're looking at your whoever the viewer is you're looking at us and and i'm going to look straight back at you and say we exist and we deserve to exist yeah it's just i i end up wanting you know that kind of people looking at me and looking beyond me at the viewer. So I like that confrontation. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. There is a marvelous quote in, in a book called Wind, Sand, and Stars um, by the guy who wrote The Little Prince. It says, love is not staring at each other. Love is staring outward in the same direction together. Um, oh, and, and, and that, that's always struck me. Um, and and I, th- I see that in these images. That these people are, by and large, you know, looking outward in the same direction together. And, and it, it really increases, I think, 
um, my perception of the bond between them uh, to see that shared vision in their faces. So I, I really like the ones where they're looking at the camera. You include a couple images of singles, people with, without a partner. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, well, their partners passed away, which is, um, it's re- that's reality. Um, you know, you're in a relationship for a long time and, and someone falls ill and, and it might be a fatal illness. So, you know, how people have to deal with that when you don't have the rights that everyone else has, I thought was an important thing to show, um, that you have to have so many different legal documents to, to cover all your bases. Um, and that the, the, the loss is profound. So the one guy who's standing on the dock at the lake with the um, two dogs. Is, yeah. Yeah. That's the lake where, where I was married. Um, oh. and, and him staring out just to me really speaks of how much he loved Kirk, his, his uh, partner and, and missed him. You have clergy in here. You have mm-hmm. a mayor uh, in here. Mm-hmm. Um, did anyone say no? I don't think so. Wow. I don't think so. I mean, there might have been a people, I can't really remember, it's been a while, that we couldn't we couldn't get the timing together, you know, to make mm-hmm. it happen. But really, everybody said yes. And fortunately, I think through my work with the Human Rights Campaign, I know a lot of people. And if I don't know them, I know people who know them. <laughs> so I kind of had a pretty good calling card. Okay. And then I, I started to make um, print-on-demand books so that I would have uh, kind of an example of what I wanted to do. And that, that really helped. The person who said, actually, the person who said no for a really long time was Edie Winter. Oh, okay. Going to get there and well, say, yep. She didn't exactly say no, but she did say yes. Mm-hmm. So that that was that was quite a story, actually. Um, you beat me to it. T- t- tell me the story. When it got to be 2013, I was really concentrating on making sure that I had enough what I thought was as much diversity as possible. So I was really looking for some long, long term relationships and and people of who weren't white men. Mm-hmm. So I was really busy with that. And then I, you know, it came, it occurred to me finally that I had this really pretty historical document because I have both of the proposition eight couples because I've had Bishop Jean Robinson, um, Barbara Giddings and Kayla Hoosen, so many people who are really involved in the fight for marriage equality and LGBTQ rights. I thought, Hey, you know, everybody's writing things about, how are we going to win marriage equality in the courts and how are we going to make this fight? And nobody's really showing, showing for whom and why. And I thought, you know, I've got the everyday people and I've got the movers and shakers. So this is pretty cool. And if I could get Edie Windsor, it would be, I would have all of them. I would have the the very tippy top and all the way down. Um, And so I made a point. I had to get Edie Windsor. And it worked. And if, if people don't know who Edie Windsor is, she's the octogenarian that brought down the first part of the Defense of Marriage Act in the Supreme Court um, when everyone told her she couldn't take her case to, to court. She said, yes, I can. And she did. And so she fought for when her partner died after 44 years together, um, she was 
she was forced to pay a very hefty inheritance fee and she fought back anyway. Um, so I really wanted easy Windsor and, you know, I went through all the channels. I tried her uh, attorney, um, Robbie Kaplan and, you know, no, Edie's too busy. And then it was no, Edie's going to take a vacation after this court case. And then, um, I had photographed people that lived in the same building that she did. So I tried them and then I met people who knew her and I tried them and it just went on and on and on. And finally, 2013, she was the grand marshal of the New York city pride March. Mm-hmm. So I went to photograph the March. I got press passes and I followed her car the entire length of the March <laughs> to make sure I at least have a picture of her if it wasn't a portrait. Mm-hmm. So and I did that. And, um, and then I, I wrote to her myself and I sent her this packet. I sent her, you know, examples of what I was doing. And I sent her this letter that said, you know, Edie, this is really important. And, you know, it would be amazing if you were a part of it because you were the missing link here. And, you know, please consider being a part. And I think that was, that was like September and no response at all. And then it was January 15th of 2014. And I know it was that date because it was my birthday. <laughs> and I was out. I decided to, to go and get myself a really decadent coffee mm-hmm. because, you know, it's your birthday and you're getting older. So I go in this coffee shop and I'm waiting and my phone rings and I look at the number. And I have no idea who this is. So I like, I put it down. I was like, nah, I'm not going to answer it. And then I thought, well, yeah, it's a New York number. Maybe I should answer it. And so I did. And the voice said, um, Barbara, this is Edie Windsor and you're doing great work and I want to be a part. And uh, my heart started to pound <laughs> and I could barely hear it was noisy in the coffee shop, but we at least were able to talk enough to say, okay, we're going to make a date to do this. And, you know, I'll, I'm going to email you and we're going to figure it out. So it took until March before she was available, mm-hmm. but when she was available, she was all in. So I went to her apartment and I took a crew with me this time because I wanted to document this and she could not have been nicer, warmer. She just, she met us in the hallway, took us into her apartment and she talked for hours and hours and hours. She was so great. She was so great. And then she was very much involved with the project. She did a lot of book signings with me and talks with me in Provincetown and New York city. We went on Olivia cruise together. Um, it was really, really great. Oh, this is, this is fantastic. I did. I love the stories. I love the stories behind all of these images and, you know, some of them are apparent. Some of them are, are, you know, real mysteries. Uh, I'm still, I'm still wondering about Norman and Graham, you know, cause you know, it says here two plus six years, a little thing below it, you know, with a 40 year break in between, man, I got to know that story sometime of <laughs> how they got back together at the end. But tell me about, cause we're going to get the, we're going to get the other projects in a second. Tell me about the reaction. T- tell me when you, know, the book comes out, the, the, ex- the traveling exhibition starts to make its rounds. T- tell me how the world responded. Oh, the response was great, amazing, really. Um, as soon as I, as soon as I, the book came out, um, suddenly everybody wanted to be a part of volume two. 
which <laughs> like, hold on. Um, yeah, I'm a little broke here. I ended up, I ended up having to publish the book myself uh-huh. um, because, you know, I tried mainstream publishers and it, it did go up the chain, a few ladders, a few rungs of the ladder, but um, everybody said no for assorted reasons. They weren't going to make any money off of it. They had just done a gay book. We did a book like this of famous lesbians. Well, that's completely different. You know, I just kept getting turned down and I thought, well, you know, I could keep at this for a couple of years, but it's 2013 now. So, you know, the, the iron is hot and it has to get done. And so I paid for it myself. So the thought of immediately doing a second volume was not in the cards. Um, not that I didn't enjoy what I did and would, you know, love taking more portraits. And I did take a few more, but yeah, I was really busy. <laughs> Uh, but this response was amazing. Um, I had exhibitions, I don't know, 16 different places across the country. Um, lots of uh, magazine exposure. And um, people used the book for so many different things. I had people ask me to send them a book because they wanted to propose. I've had people <laughs> who, you know... I won't tell you the whole story, but they had to give the book to their mother because they were get, they were getting married. A woman was getting married to a woman and the family didn't approve. Mm-hmm. And I gave her the book as a gift. And she said, she like almost immediately said, I, I have to go and I have to give this to my mother. And she did. And I, I was there to photograph their wedding there. She said, it's only going to be the two of us and our witnesses. That's it. Cause our families aren't on board. I said, okay. And so when I went back to photograph the wedding, there were 75 people there. Oh, my. Uh, And the mother was in the front row smiling the entire time. So the book, people get it after they see the book. That's pretty cool. That's the kind of stuff that you you just look at the sky and say, okay, I I did good today. Um, Yeah, one of my favorite things was the city of Philadelphia. There was an exhibition there of... um, speaking out for equality and, you know, the gay rights movement at the national constitution center. And they, they contacted me and said, Hey, you know, can we buy nine copies of your book? I was like, yeah, sure. And, you know, would you come to this press conference? Um, and it was March, 2015, maybe. Yeah. And, um, so I said, okay, I had no idea what was going on. So I get there and the books are all lined up down this long table and all these Philadelphia dignitaries are there and they've all signed the book. And next to the book is a letter to each of the Supreme court justices just prior to the 2015 um, Supreme court decision. And they were using my book to invite them to the exhibition so they could try to understand before they made their decision. And they can't, you know, this, well, supposedly the Supreme court justices are not allowed to accept gifts. Supposedly. Um, (laughs) They weren't returned. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But this was an invitation. Okay. Okay. It it was the invitation. It wasn't a gift. It was like, (laughs) instead of a card, it was a book. So, did any of them show up? No, they didn't. Oh, okay. But some of them wrote back and, you know, but I have pictures of the, the letters to 
Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that was pretty cool. So I when I went down to um, the oral arguments um, in April, I knew that my book was inside. I love it. That's fantastic. Okay, so you, you didn't do volume two right away, but we do move then into Transcending Love. So, okay, tell, tell me where this idea first came into your head and, and what sparked this one for you. Well, again, people wanted volume two, and you know, I was like, it's a lot of work when you self-publish. You, you are everything. You're, you know, you're marketing, you're um, shipping and receiving, you're mm-hmm. accountant, you're everything. And, and as a self-published author, you have to contact the, the bookstores and ask them if they'll carry it because you're not on the distribution lists. Right. So it's a lot of work. Anyway, so I'm busy um, going to exhibitions and you know, promoting this project. And then we had this election in 2016 and honestly the for for my community the floodgates of bigotry opened wide immediately it was shocking it was terrible and so i thought oh man all right well i guess there's more work to be done but um i'm not going to repeat exactly what i did what I've already done. It's the, it's the trans community that needs go, the understanding, the compassion, the love, the acceptance right now. This is the most vulnerable population. And I'm going to try to make a difference there. And I, Edie was very supportive of me. She was encouraging me to do it. And I still was wondering, like, how am I ever going to do this? And um, there's a woman in Philadelphia who's a, she's a pretty major art collector who's collected my work. And she sends out, not a holiday card, but she sends out some sort of new year's mailing and she sent me this mailing that was it opened up like it just folded down and it was all based on fortune cookies and sayings in fortune cookies but they were all about how you're going to figure out how to do it how you're going to you know find the money somewhere it was all these sayings and i thought okay all right i get it <laughs> message received um <laughs> I'm on it. And I decided that, that I would forge ahead and, and do a similar project, but with the trans community with the same idea of, of portraits and stories to try to say, Hey, this, these are human beings. Let's look at, at who they are because it's really, you know, it's once you know someone's story, it's, it's easier to accept who they are. It just Mm -hmm. is. And I've, I've seen it. I've heard it multiple times across the country. Why did you go for color with this one? That's a good question. Um, so I, t- I talked to my boss, um, our program director at the University of the Arts. I told her, you know, what I was doing. And then some friends of mine, I, I reached out to my network and said, all right, I'm doing this. So if you know trans couples, uh, non-binary couples around the world um, country, just let me know. And two friends of mine in New Jersey said, we know these guys in Las Vegas and, and they're about to have a baby like any second. And I told my boss and she said, well, you have to go. <laughs> and so I did. And so they were the first, first couple that I photographed. And, mm-hmm. um, the one guy was having labor pains while we were photographing. So I didn't even get to do the interview. Um, 
But the portraits, I was just like, oh my God, this was, I was just blown away as they were happening. And I thought they were going to be in black and white. I really did. And I looked at them later and I thought, Mm-mm, no, this is, it's, this is in color. And it, 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 it fits better because the trans community is anything but black and white. Right. There are so many different ways of being trans and you have to get into labels, which I really hate to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a full spectrum of people. And I knew that it needed to be in color. Well, it was, it was funny because you described the original choice as stripping away the rainbow to get at something uh, less pop culture-ish, less, you know, cliched in, in, in a lot of mm-hmm. um, a lot of people's imaginations. And, and, you know, here you're going exactly the opposite direction, saying, I got to reveal something different. I, I got to tell a different story with the color. This this project, reaction to it? I mean, again, it, it's beautiful, beautiful work. And, and, and these couples are just absolutely compelling with what they're expressing through the image. I got to I got to assume this book was just as as much loved. Well, there isn't a book yet. Well, okay, okay. this project. Sorry, yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, t- to tell you the truth, so the first the first exhibition opened in Fort Lauderdale at the Stonewall National Museum and Archives in 2019, November, mm-hmm. and I actually had to go down there. Yes, it was November, um, and. Uh, it was up until March of 2020. So there you go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Everything shut down and so did the exhibition. So it's been sitting here in my studio for a long time until um, I've had individual pictures in places, but honestly there people weren't having in-person exhibitions. So sometimes it was in these online exhibitions, but I, I, I won first place in this in this uh, one competition, and the gallery director said, "Hey, do you want to have a show?" And I thought, "Well, it's sitting here in boxes, so yeah, <laughs> sure do." <laughs> um, and so the first, the second solo exhibition opened this past May. Oh, cool! And the response was amazing, amazing. I mean. A woman actually came up to me at the at the opening and said, "This is." In-. She was crying. She was crying. She said, "This is amazing. This is incredible. I had no idea. I live close by. I thought I needed to die. Just I was curious because this is so different from what they usually show in this gallery, and I wanted to see what it was about. And it's just so incredibly powerful. Everybody has to see it." Okay, and, and that's, yes, everybody does have to see this work. But I mean, both projects are, are just, like I said before, they're necessary. They're, they're the kind of things, you know, the, 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 those of us with the camera, we do have the ability to affect social change. Um, and we, we can get the stuff out there. I think that this is work that we need to do and that people need to see. Emphasis on the word need there. We've got just a minute left. I, I want to switch over to one other part of your life, um, and, and that is your teaching. Because, you know, I, I looked at your Instagram page and, and suddenly here's this portraiture techniques with minimal lighting. And I'm thinking, okay, I need this. <laughs> um, you know, tell me what, because, what, you know, and you say an awful lot, you know, that, that you use your work in conversation with your students. That, you know, it, it's not all, you know, staid lectures and, and that kind of stuff. 
Tell me what, why you started teaching and, and, and tell me about working for ICP and for the university. Well, I never in my life imagined that I would be a teacher. I mean, I was very happy being a commercial photographer and, you know, taking pictures personally here and there. And I had done projects that, you know, were exhibition worthy and had exhibitions that were just my personal things that were very different from what I'm doing now. So I had these two friends in that taught at the university of art in Philadelphia. One of them had been my teacher uh, Mm -hmm. when I was in college and they kept trying to tell me, you need to teach. Why don't you come teach with us? Try teaching. Like, nah, I'm good. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then my older sister, who had been such a, an influence for me, she died. Oh. She died of breast cancer when she was 55. And, uh, and I just had a, um, had a very introspective look at myself and what are you doing with your life and, you know, how are you affecting people and how are you giving back? And I, I decided I wasn't giving back. And so that maybe I'll try that teaching thing and, I know how hard it was for me to, you know, to learn how to be a photographer and maybe I can help other people. So I thought, okay, I'll try it. And I fell in love with it pretty fast. It was hard, but my wife is a social worker. And so she helped me figure out all the hard stuff. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's really inspiring. I mean, I, you know, I have my own way of teaching that's, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm the tough guy and I'm demanding, but I'm demanding because I know how hard it is and I want people to succeed. But mm-hmm. I'm also, you know, I'm just really good at it, kind of. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm compassionate in that, you know, you, you know, we'll figure it out. You need help. You just talk to me and we'll figure things out. But I expect you to get your work done, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And, uh, you can't be sloppy about it. So I've been at the University of the Arts for 23 years. I think every art depends on a kind of mentoring relationship, whether it's sculpture or dance or music or whatever. You, know, you go study with the people who challenge you, whose work you admire, maybe not in, um, imitate, but, but certainly whose work you admire. And a good teacher can really open the universe for all of us at, at any level. Uh, I know people older than I am that, that are going back to school because they want to learn something new You know, that they don't have the vocabulary for yet or the experience. Barbara, I, I am impressed. I, I'm, I'm impressed with, with the commercial work, the fine art work. Um, the, the two social projects are just abs, like I said before, necessary. They are beautifully done. And I want to be your student someday. Thank you very much. This, this has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.